This is Wesley Huff. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Today on the podcast, I have the privilege of introducing my friend, Jonathan McClatchy. Jonathan is a name that many of the listeners may be uh, familiar with. He's a regular contributor to a number of online and, and apologetics resources and organizations, including crossexamine.org, the Christian Apologetics Alliance, answeringmuslims.com. And he's also a contributor at Evolution News and Science Today, which is the official blog of the Discovery Institute. And uh, he's been on Unbelievable Radio, on Premier Christian Radio, and a number of other different outlets. Um, Jonathan is actually ahead of the time, if for no other reason than I think I was jumping on Zoom calls in 2016 with Jonathan McClatchy in the early years of the Apologetics Academy. Is that right, Jonathan? Were you doing calls on, on Zoom uh, way back then? Was that when you started to go on that platform? Well, yeah, we launched the Apologetics Academy in, in early 2016. Yeah. So uh, Zoom has, has been around much longer than COVID, uh, even though it's exploded in the last few months. But uh, Jonathan was ahead of the ahead of the curve on, on that one. And the reason that I've asked uh, Jonathan on the program today, even though Jonathan, his speciality is in biology, he's uh, an assistant professor at Sattler College in Boston. He is one of the most widely read and versatile individuals I know. And I think he is, is just as fluent on topics like the Bible as he is on topics like biology. And I'm so, I'm excited to uh, have him sit down with him today to talk about the reliability of the Bible in a way that maybe we, we don't talk about all that often because we often hear discussions of the reliability of the Gospels. But I wanted Jonathan to come on the program today and talk about the reliability of the book of Acts, because Acts is an important book. It's the second book written by Luke, the Gospel author, and, and it goes into an explanation of that, sort of the early church after the ascension of Christ. But uh, yeah, Jonathan, why why do you think personally that formulating a uh, an accurate, a cogent explanation of the reliability of Acts is an important one. Sure. So uh, the book of Acts, as you mentioned, is the second volume in two-volume set uh, written by Luke. He was a physician in the first century. Uh, he wrote uh, the third gospel we find in our New Testament, the Gospel of Luke. And then he wrote this sequel called the book of Acts. And uh, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. And, uh, and the book of Acts bridges the gap between the Gospels and the epistles, right? It tells us what happened in, in the years following Jesus' death and resurrection. It tells us about the history of the early church. And uh, it's authenticated in, in multiple ways by, uh, for instance, uh, numerous points of external com confirmation from external secular sources and also archaeology. 
is uh, authenticated by the presence of undesigned coincidences, which we can get into later, um, which are basically in, in ways in which the Book of Acts and the Epistles of Paul intersect in ways that uh, appear not to be deliberate and, and appear to be undesigned, which I think are hallmarks of verisimilitude or authenticity. And uh, it's also it's also supported by other internal evidence of authenticity as well. And it provides a natural way to authenticate the Gospels, because if it turns out that uh, the author of Acts is someone who is uh, who has reliable access to information, he's a responsible researcher, he is uh, habitually truthful and reliable in his reportage of information in uh, the Book of Acts. And that bodes favorably for uh, his Gospel as well, the, the Gospel of Luke, and suggests that uh, maybe the, the Gospel of Luke is, is also reliable because it's written by the same author and we can show from the book of Acts that he's built up a track record of habitually um, reliable reportage, then that uh, bodes favorably for the, the reliability of uh, the Gospel of Luke as well. And of course, we can also make arguments independent of that, that the Gospel of Luke is, is reliable in its own terms as well. So um, there's, there's good evidence uh, that the author of, of Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. Most famously, uh, there's the presence of the so-called we passages from Acts 16 and following that um, I think are best explained as uh, indicating or suggesting that the author was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He's actually using this inclusive pronoun to indicate that he was there with Paul. And uh, there's, uh, good, there's good grounds, I think, for, for taking the we passages to, to indicate that. So, for example, in Acts 16, uh, that's where you have the, the introduction of the we passages. And they, they trail off when Paul is in Philippi. And, and then you don't get any more we passages until you get to Acts chapter 20. And they kick off again. They start again when Paul goes back through Philippi, which suggests that the, the author of, of Luke Acts had actually remained there in Philippi and rejoined Paul on his return through Philippi. So it's got a, um, a ring of verisimilitude there that, that I think points towards uh, the, the wee passages indicating actually that the author was present with Paul during those occasions, during those events. And, uh, that, and that can contribute to a, a broader cumulative argument, which um, supports that uh, as well. Now, if the Book of Acts comes from a meticulous historian who seems to have first-hand knowledge of at least some of the life and doings of Paul, uh, this fact um, should increase uh, the credibility of Luke. And uh, as I said, if we can demonstrate that Luke was a habitual truth-teller who was in a position to know what the original apostolic statement was concerning the nature of the resurrection appearances, then this is of huge value in helping us to corroborate Jesus' resurrection from the dead as well. Because um, if we can show that Luke was someone who was personally acquainted with the Jerusalem elders, especially people like Peter and James and the Twelve, then, uh, and we can show that he's, uh, so he's a personally acquainted with them, so he's in a position to know what they were saying, and he's a habitual, habitually reliable and truthful reporter, then that um, increases the credibility of his statements in both his Gospel and in the Book of Acts concerning the nature and variety of the resurrection encounters with the risen Jesus. So um, if you look at the book of Acts chapter 2, for example, Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through 32, this is when Peter is boldly proclaiming the resurrection to the Jews at Pentecost, some 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. 
And so Peter seems to be uh, indicating there that he himself was a witness to the resurrected Christ. And, and also, of course, in Luke 24, we have a report concerning the resurrection appearances to the 12 as well. So Luke actually, it turns out, claims to receive information from eyewitnesses. Uh, in the prologue of the Gospel of Luke, the first four verses, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So he's writing to this official by the name of Theophilus, and he also, of course, addresses the book of Acts to this individual as well. And uh, he claims that he's receiving information from eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that have delivered them to us. Um, and we also know from the book of Acts that he, uh, that Luke met with the, el- the Jerusalem elders in Jerusalem in, uh, in Acts 21, verse 17 through 18. He says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Um, and so Luke was personally acquainted with James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and the other Jerusalem elders, which would include Peter and so forth. And, and so he was in a position uniquely to know what was being claimed concerning the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, including the nature and variety of the resurrection encounters with the risen Jesus. That, that then provides reason to trust that when he tells us what would be proclaimed by Peter at Pentecost and what was proclaimed by, by the disciples and gives a report of their resurrection encounters in Luke 24, that adds to the credibility of those accounts and as it supports that the resurrection claim, including its polymodal character involving not just sight, but group conversations and, and physical contact and, and so forth, um, that that um, goes back to the, the apostles themselves. And that's what needs to be explained when when we um, examine the evidence uh, for the resurrection. So I think that that is uh, where making a, a robust case for the reliability of, of Luke and Acts uh, is, is relevant uh, in apologetics. Yeah, there was, um, you used a word there, Jonathan, verisimilitude. And I think for the, the listeners who may not be familiar with that word, uh, that word means the appearance of truth, likelihood, and probability. And historians, when they're looking at any occurrence or explanation of something within history, we're looking for verisimilitude. We're looking for corroborative evidence that can point to the appearance and the truthfulness of a particular account. And and I think you did a really good job there, Jonathan, of just explaining the, the different aspects of how not only the why of the importance of the historicity of the book of Acts, but the what in terms of, you know, there are a few different characteristics. Our regular listeners will have recognized the fact that Jonathan used a couple of terms there that we've talked about on the program before, whether it's uh, the reliability of the Bible episodes that I've had the uh, benefit of being part of. But um, some of the listeners may remember that not all that long ago, Andy Steiger interviewed Peter J. Williams in regards to his book, uh, Why Trust the Gospels. And in there, he talks about a couple of these different characteristics, things like undesigned coincidences. I think it's also important as, as a side note to mention that, that you, we do have Luke and Acts as separate volumes. And uh, there are a number of different reasons why that could be the case. I mean, the, in the, the Greco-Roman world, which is the world that these documents are being written in, literary works were customarily published in the format of, of a scroll. 
made from papyrus or parchment. And the papyrus scroll was made by gluing together side by side separate sheets of papyrus and then winding the long strips around a roller. And this produced a volume. That word, volume, we actually uh, get from a Latin word, uh, volume, meaning something rolled up. And actually the length of papyrus in a single roll uh, was limited by considerations of convenience and handling. And the normal Greek literary roll seldom exceeded 35 feet in length. And it's interesting that if you do an, an analysis of how many feet a roll of the book of Acts and the book of the Gospel of Luke would have fit, it would have been approximately 31 and 32 feet for each. So doubtless, this may be one of the reasons why Luke and Acts were issued as two volumes. But I think from a literary perspective, we could see them as just a part one and part two of the same story, of actually the same book. We separate them in our, our modern Bibles, but they're actually, you know, a, a chapter one, chapter two kind of deal. And I think that also speaks to some of the reasons why it's important not only to look at the reliability of the Gospels, but also the the reliability of Acts because they they dovetail into one another. Uh, Jonathan, why don't we just jump into maybe some of those uh, things at a little more length that you were talking about um, in terms of some of those particular evidences towards uh, the reliability. What one do you think is a, a good one to jump into off the bat? Absolutely. And and these uh, evidences that confirm the veracity of the Book of Acts uh, support uh, the contention that Luke was indeed a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, because it makes uh, that hypothesis makes best sense of the fact that Luke has uh, Pauline knowledge of Paul's activities, that is, knowledge of Paul's activities that's best explained by him being a traveling companion of Paul. Secondly, that Luke has uh, Pauline knowledge of the world, that is, knowledge of the world is best explained by Luke being a traveling companion of Paul. And uh, so let's, let's um, have a look at uh, some of those evidences. So I mentioned earlier uh, undesigned coincidences in uh, the Book of Acts and how it intersects with the letters of Paul. And this is best explained by, by giving examples. So I'll give an example. Um, if we look at uh, the first epistle to the Corinthians, that's 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians, of course, was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul from Ephesus to uh, Corinth, which is the capital of Achaia. We now know it as Greece. And He's writing in the early to mid-50s AD. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, that is why I sent you Timothy, right? So at the time that Paul is writing from Ephesus to Corinth, he's already sent Timothy on his way to Corinth. But then turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 10. He says, when Timothy comes, say that you put him ease among you. So even though Paul's already sent Timothy from Ephesus to Corinth at the time of his writing, he nonetheless expects Timothy, he nonetheless expects his letter to arrive in Corinth before Timothy gets there, right? Because that's why he uses the future tense in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10. When Timothy comes, see the epitomies among you. So when the Christians in Corinth are reading Paul's letter, Timothy's not yet come, even though he's already left at the time of Paul's writing. We would therefore infer that Timothy must have taken some indirect route to Corinth. And indeed, the most natural way to send a letter by boat from Ephesus to Corinth would be over the Aegean Sea, right? From Ephesus to Corinth by boat with a favorable wind. And we would infer that Timothy must have taken the indirect overland route going up through Troas and Macedonia, which would then 
illuminate and explain why Te- Paul has already sent Timothy at the time of his, of his writing. And nonetheless, he expects this letter to arrive in Corinth before Timothy gets there because he sent his letter the most direct way over by boat from over the Aegean Sea. And he sent Timothy the indirect overland route up through Troas and Macedonia. And it turns out, if you go over to the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 21 and 22, this describes when Paul is in Ephesus. And it says that after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And so it turns out that he's sent Timothy and Erastus up through Macedonia while he himself remains in Asia. And he's indeed um, planning or intending to pass through uh, to Corinth, uh, or Pastor Achaia, which is where Corinth is, and go to Jerusalem. Uh, but notice that actually Acts doesn't mention that Corinth is the destination of Timothy and Erastus. It just says he sent them into Macedonia, while he himself stayed in Asia. So these account, this account in the book of Acts dovetails with 1 Corinthians, these little clues in 1 Corinthians, in just the way you would expect on the hypothesis of, of truth, uh, that this is actually grounded in real events. It has um, it, it points to the undesignedness of this coincidence, uh, and undesignedness is, is a hallmark of, of truth. So there's uh, one example of an undesigned uh, coincidence, which supports not only the, the on the, the veracity of the accounts in the back, but also supports the the Pauline authorship of uh, of the the letters that we find in the Pauline corpus, including in this case First Corinthians. Um, so let's take another example. If we go over to the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 3 through 5, we read, uh, this is when uh, Paul is uh, getting acquainted with uh, Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. And it says, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now, a natural question arises as we read this text. What caused the shift from Paul's working all week and doing evangelism on the Sabbath to his devoting himself completely to the word? So he shifts his ministry model, whereas previously he'd been working during the week as a tent maker, and then on the Sabbath day he was doing his evangelistic outreach. Now he's changed his ministry model, and now he's devoted himself completely to the ministry. So what changed? Well, it apparently had something to do with this, with the arrival of Silas and Timothy from Macedonia. Because notice it says, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. Now for the answer, we, we don't find the answer in the book of Acts, but we can find the answer if we turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8 and 9. Paul says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. And so this supports then uh, the the, authenticity, uh, the veracity of, of the book of Acts, um, because Acts reports the, his change in ministry model, but doesn't report the explanation for that, namely that the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied his need, whereas that, that detail is supplied in Second Corinthians. So the accounts interlock in a way that is casual and subtle and points to the truth of the narratives. 
Take another example from the book of Acts chapter 15. This is um, from verse 37 through 41. This is when there's a big split between Paul and Barnabas over Mark having previously withdrawn from them in Philia. It says, and then Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now the question arises here, why was Barnabas so keen to take Mark with him? Why does it cause a split between Paul and Barnabas? Because Barnabas is quite adamant that Mark is to go with them, but Paul doesn't feel comfortable with this, and so Paul and Barnabas part company. Well, the question is, is not, the answer to that question is not given to us in the book of Acts. However, if we turn over to one of Paul's letters, namely the book of Colossians, chapter 4 and verse 10, we have our answer. Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And so it turns out then that Mark and Barnabas are cousins. They have a familial relationship, which then illuminates why in the of Acts, Barnabas is so keen for Mark to go with them. But if you, and Colossians doesn't even acknowledge that there was ever a, a rift in, uh, between Paul and uh, Mark and Barnabas. In fact, by the time Colossians is written, during Paul's uh, first Roman imprisonment, it seems that, uh, that that rift existed must have been resolved by that point. Uh, there's no mention of it. Uh, he speaks warmly of, of Mark. He says, um, he says that Mark um, is with me. He says, our sort of focus is you and Mark, cousin of Barnabas. Concerning him, who received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So it's not that the author of Colossians is reading Acts and, think, and, and trying to insert this detail in order to illuminate Acts, because there's no mention of this rift in the book of Colossians. And there's no mention in the book of, of Acts of this familiar relationship between Mark and Barnabas. And so it points to the veracity of the account. I'll take another, uh, one more example just now. So if we go over to um, the book of First Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, um, it says, this is when Paul's writing to the Christians in Thessalonica. It says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. We were willing to be left behind to Athens alone and we sent Timothy. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So from First Thessalonians 3, verse 1 through 6, it appears that Paul was, a, a, was alone at Athens, having sent Timothy to Thessalonica, and that Timothy joined him afterwards. Now, Acts 17, verse 14 and following, agrees with this, except that instead of being sent to Thessalonica, Timothy was left behind, was left at Berea. So if we look over at, at Acts 17, verse 13 through 15, it says, um, so Basically, Paul has been, has been in Thessalonica with the Christians there and preaching the gospel. And then there was a riot among the Jews that were stirring up trouble for Paul. So he had to leave in haste and go to Berea 
But then the Jews came from Thessalonica to Berea to stir up trouble for him there, and he had to leave in haste for Athens. So in Acts 17, verse 13 through 15, it says, When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Berea is less than 50 miles west of Thessalonica, and Paul left Berea for Athens in haste because the Jews from Thessalonica came to Berea to stir up the people against him in Acts 17 verse 13. Now, under the circumstances, Paul was worried about the Christians in Thessalonica. And it turns out from reading uh, 1 Thessalonians 3 that he therefore commissioned Timothy to go back to Thessalonica to check on the Christians there. Whereas Luke, in the book of Acts, has just omitted the sending of Timothy from Berea to Thessalonica, thus leaving the cause of a separation from Paul and Acts line. Because notice that the book of Acts doesn't mention that Paul had charged Timothy with going back to Thessalonica. It just mentioned that he was left behind Berea. This first Thessalonians, which doesn't mention Timothy being left in Berea, which mentions him being sent back to Thessalonica to check up on the well-being of the Christians who were there. And so again, we have this interlocking, this undesigned coincidence that points both to the authenticity um, of the Pauline corpus, that, that these letters were indeed written by Paul, and also supports the uh, substantial trustworthiness, cumulatively, of the book of Acts as well. Um, and so... Uh, the, the, there's so many examples of these unsigned coincidences scattered throughout the book of Acts, um, and we have many examples in the Gospels as well. In, in the book of Acts, if you only give me the first four letters of Paul that we find in our New Testament, that is Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Galatians, I could already give you more than 40 examples of this sort of undesigned coincidence. And so cumulatively, I think this points to the substantial trustworthiness of the book of Acts and indeed supports that Luke was, in, was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Hmm. Yeah. And, and what we're seeing, what we're seeing here is instances when we have these independent accounts, uh, one or more independent accounts, and they're interlocking. So not only are we seeing, you know, testimony for the book of Acts, but we're also seeing other veracity for details and accounts that we find in some of the other Pauline epistles, right, that are interlocking in such a way that if these things were fabricated, if they were made up, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't have those. It, it would, that wouldn't be something you would think to do because they are secondary in nature to the, the themes and the ideas. Um, so not only, I think, Jonathan, um, in what you're articulating uh, is what we're hearing a, a verification of the historicity, the truthfulness, the veracity of the book of Acts and what we're seeing with uh, Luke's account within the testimony of of the the journeys of Paul, but we're also seeing you know a a echoing back onto some of these other letters that Paul is writing. Would you say that that's true as well? Yeah, exactly. It supports the authenticity of the Pauline corpus, and and there there are seven letters that are universally acknowledged to be written by Paul, right? Um, and then there are other letters which are more disputed, uh, including uh, Colossians and Ephesians were almost certainly written by the same author, but mm -hmm. uh, but there's about 50-50 split, I think, between uh, scholars who think that Colossians and Ephesians were written by Paul and those who, who don't think it, they were. But the presence of undesigned coincidences 
in Colossians supports um, that Colossians was an given example of an undesigned coincidence there. And uh, and there's, there's others we could talk about as well. And uh, and also in turn supports that Ephesians was written by Paul as well, since they were almost certainly written by the same author. Uh, the, the the pastoral epistles, uh, first Timothy, second Timothy, and Titus, that they, they are the most widely contested letters of Paul that we find in our New Testament canon. Um, and these also can be supported by undesigned coincidences as well to be, to be uh, genuinely Pauline. So uh, I, th- I think we have a good good grounds actually to think that all 13 letters of Paul are written by Paul, not just the seven which are um, uncontested in contemporary scholarship. Right. Yeah. Just for the the listeners who may or may not know, in in contemporary uh, New Testament scholarship, there's this idea that seven of the letters of Paul that we find in our Bibles, particularly 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon, 2 Corinthians, and Romans are what they refer to as authentic in the sense that uh, modern scholars believe that these were actually written by Paul and they would cast doubt on the other letters as either synonymous, that they're attributed to Paul, that they were developed later and had this idea of having Pauline authorship connected to them being a a later development within church history. Um, I think Jonathan and I would both very strongly say that we we would uphold all of the 13 letters of Paul that we find in in our New Testament as authentic. And I think that actually uh, the reasons for that are stronger than the reasons against it. And uh, we, we could go into that at length. I, I don't think we necessarily have to. But just so the audience knows, in contemporary uh, secular scholarship, there is this idea that not all of the books in our Bible that we have traditionally referred to as the Pauline letters have a sense of authenticity to them as being Pauline. But I think in terms of the question that we're addressing today, these aspects of undesigned coincidences actually do corroborate some of these other letters in a way that does cast more strength to uh, an argument for them being authentic in, in juxtaposition to what a lot of uh, modern scholars would say. And, and I think Jonathan and I would both be on the same page in that regard. Um, there are a couple of other areas that maybe we we have some t- time to uh, talk about, Jonathan. I think you've you've shown a number of really great examples of, of undesigned coincidences, which you know show this this weaving uh, and intersecting of truthfulness within the Book of Acts and some of these other letters that show you know uh, verification of of Paul and where we would expect to see him in certain certain areas of the narration of his journey. What's another one that we can look to that we can say, okay, okay, there's undesigned coincidences, but what, what else do we have in terms of this cumulative case of developing a, a strong, you know, portfolio of how we can point to acts being a reliable account? Sure, absolutely. And, and I mentioned the sheer volume of undesigned coincidences we can find in the bigger backs. Uh, I mentioned that we can find more than 40 examples just dovetailing with Romans, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, and Galatians biblical corroborations, that is, external secular sources which corroborate aspects, elements of the Book of Acts. I can give you more than 100 examples of those. Um, I'll, I'll just give, yeah, I'll just give a, a few examples to, to illustrate the point. So, um, it, when, when in Acts 19.38, when Luke tells us of the rise in Ephesus, he reports that the city clerk tells the crowd that there are consuls. Now, what's a proconsul? 
Well, a proconsul is a, is a Roman authority to whom a complaint may be taken. And normally there was only one proconsul. But just at that particular time, there seems to have been two as a result of the assassination of Salinas, uh, the previous proconsul, by poisoning in the fall of AD 54 by the two imperial stewards at the urging of Nero's mother. And this event is actually independently documented by Cornelius Tacitus in his Annals of Imperial Rome. And indeed, Luke, indeed Luke's accuracy has allowed historians to date the event, which Luke narrates with incredible precision since we know when Salinas was poisoned. Because notice in Acts 1938, it says there, it doesn't say there is a proconsul, he says there are proconsuls. And so that uh, little um, casual reference to the fact that there are there are multiple proconsuls at the time uh, is, is, is striking. And it, it seems almost to be wrong until you realize actually that just at that particular time, there was two, not just one. And so that uh, that dovetailing, that casual interlocking between the Acts and the uh, secular um, sources, in this case, Tacitus, uh, supports the veracity of, of the account. Take another example um, from Acts 23, verse four and five. This is when uh, Paul has been apprehended by the Jewish council and brought before He's been brought before Ananias, the high priest. So, so Paul says to the high priest, uh, because he's been struck on the mouth at, at Ananias' order, and he says, God is going to strike you, whitewashed wall. And the people who are standing by say, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. Now, it turns out that Ananias, of whom this is spoken, was in truth not the high priest, although he was sitting in judgment in that same capacity. Uh, the case was that he had formerly held the office, he'd been deposed, and the person who had succeeded him, called Jonathan, had been murdered. Another had not yet been appointed to the station, and that during the vacancy, he out of his own authority taken upon himself the discharge of the office. And you can, you can find that in Flavius uh, Josephus interviews with the Jews. And indeed, the singular situation of the high priesthood uh, took place during the interval between the death of Jonathan, who was murdered by the order of Felix and the accession of Ishmael. He was invested with the high priesthood by Agrippa, and it was precisely in this interval that happened that the apostle Paul was apprehended and brought before the Jewish council. I'll give uh, two more examples. Um, this one is um, from Acts 24, verse 24 through 25. This is when uh, Paul is before Felix, and it says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And the question arises, why does Paul pick those particular conversation topics to talk about with Felix? It says in verse 25, as he reasoned about righteousness, and self-control and the coming judgment. Well, it turns out that we have some illumination as to why Paul might pick those particular conversation topics. Let me go over to uh, Flavius Josephus, first century Jewish historian, in volume 20 of his Antiquities of the Jews. And he says, and I quote, but for the marriage of Drusilla with Azizus, it was in no long time afterwards dissolved upon the following occasion. Well, Felix was procurator of Judea. He saw this Drusilla and fell in love with her, for she did indeed exceed all other women in beauty. And he sent to her a person whose name was Simon, one of his friends, a Jew he was, and by birth a uh, um, Cypriot, and one who pretended to be a magician and endeavored to persuade her to forsake her present husband and marry him, and promised that if she would not refuse him, he would make her a happy woman. 
Accordingly, she acted ill, and because she was desirous to avoid her sister, Bernice's envy, for she was very ill-treated by her on account of her beauty, was prevailed upon to transgress the laws of her forefathers and to marry Felix. And so this then illuminates why Paul, when standing before Felix and Drusilla, he said, it says in Acts 24, verse 25, as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And Felix was a lot, and he also might explain or eliminate uh, Felix's alarmed reaction, where he um, he says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So uh, Felix is made to feel very uncomfortable. I'll take uh, one more example. This uh, relates to uh, Luke's uh, travels with Paul to Rome in Acts 27. And now, as I mentioned earlier, Luke was a traveling companion with Paul. Uh, we can make a strong argument from that for the wee passages and also from these extra corroborations and undesigned coincidence that Luke has knowledge that's best explained by him being a traveling companion with Paul. And um, in Acts uh, 27, uh, it turns out that Luke was present with Paul on his visit on his voyage from Caesarea to Rome. Now that actually supports that Luke was indeed present with Paul on his visit to Jerusalem, where they meet with the Jerusalem elders, in particular James, in Acts 21. Uh, because uh, Luke, uh, Paul was uh, present in Jerusalem, and then he was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years, and then from Caesarea he travels to Rome. So if Luke was with Paul during that voyage. He must have been present at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 21. And when you go over to Acts 27. Verse 1 and 2, it says, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other brothers. We put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And verse 3, the next day we went put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cured for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed unto the Lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against it. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. So they start from Jerusalem, they went to Caesarea, and then to Sidon, and then to Myra. And um, from here, they, they transfer to a Greek Alexandrian grain ship. Right? That's indicated in, in verse 6 and verse 38. Now, just uh, some background here. So Luke said earlier um, that there was in Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 28, that there was a famine during the reign of Claudius. And we verified this because Josephus also talks about it. And we know that Claudius established this grain fleet that would truck up to 150,000 tons of corn from a Greek city called Alexandria in Egypt. Um, in fact, scholars have actually been able to reconstruct their ancient shipping schedules. Um, and so the Roman centurion transfers these prisoners to one of these Alexandrian grain ships, and they end up at Crete. Mm. And so let me just give you a taste of the authenticity of this voyage. And by the way, if you want more details on this, there's a great book on this by James Smith called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. And this is also covered in, in Colin Hemer's um, book on the, the Book of Acts, called The Book of Acts and Setting Pellistic History. It's also covered um, by um, Craig Keener in his four-volume commentary on the Book of Acts as well. Um, so let me just give you two evidences. So first from here at Crete, they're trying to so they're trying to get from one end of the, of the of the island to the other, traversing along along the shore. And so it says in the, the sail along in verse 13, 14, they sailed along Crete, close to the shore, but as soon as tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. Now, here's our first evidence. So there's this well-confirmed wind that rides over Crete in the northwest, and it happens to be strongest at this exact time near the Passover. And uh, what's impressive is that uh, the island of Cotta, uh, where, they, where they end up uh, being blown to, 
is more than 20 miles west-southwest of where they where they began, um, and or where the where the storm likely struck the travelers in, in the Bay of Massara. And that's precisely where the trajectory of a northeaster should have carried them. And it's not the sort of information someone would have inferred without having been blown there. In fact, ancients found it nearly impossible to properly locate islands this far out. And in fact, Ptolemy and Pliny the Elder had the estimates in Luke's day, and both would have been thought at the time to keep on Luke's claim there, because they both contradict Luke. But it happens to be Luke's report alone that gets the implied location of the island right. In fact, Colin Hemer, in his book, The Book of Acts and Southern Hellenistic History, he says that um, it becomes increasingly difficult to believe that such details could have been derived from any kind of contemporary reference work. He also says that in the places where we can compare, Luke sure is much better than the Encyclopedia's Pliny, who might be regarded as a foremost first century example of such a source. Pliny places Cauda opposite Heretna, some 90 miles too far east. Even Ptolemy, who offers a reckoning of latitude and longitude, makes a serious dislocation to the northwest, putting Cauda too near the western end of Crete in a position which would not suit the unsuited narrative of our, uh, sorry, the unstudied narrative of our text. And so uh, that, these evidences cumulatively point to uh, the, 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 the fact that Luke was indeed a traveling companion of Paul. And uh, just uh, before I wrap up, I'll also mention uh, the phenomenon of unexplained illusions in uh, the Book of Acts. Unexplained illusions is when we have these irrelevant and unnecessary details that have no relevance at all to the story, which also, I think, are a hallmark of our similitude or truth likeness. So I'll just give one example of this. Uh, this is uh, my personal favorite one from the Book of Acts. In the Book of Acts chapter 18, when it speaks about um, Paul uh, returning to Antioch in, in verse 18 and 19, it says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer. Uh, so this is when he's been uh, in, in Corinth. And, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Kenkri, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And then we just moves on with the story, verse 19. Then they came to Ephesus and so forth. And, and so why just throw in this irrelevant detail that at Kenkri he was under he cut his hair for he was under a vow. And what's that about, right? And so again, it points to the veracity of, of the account. And so when we look at all these, these categories of evidence cumulatively, and we just really scratch the surface at today, it points, I think, very, very powerfully to the substantial trustworthiness of Act that shows the kind of reporter he was, someone who was habitually trustworthy and reliable, someone who was close up to the facts and has a reliable access uh, to information concerning the life and times of Paul and the, the life of, of, of the early church. Yeah, that's a that's a great point there, Jonathan. And and I think, you know, although, you know, we piled on a lot there, um, you highlighted a lot of different aspects of different extra biblical corroborations. I think it's important for us to be able to know these things and be well versed in them. If for no other reason, then a, as we've just said, you know, it, it shows the historicity and the reliability of the biblical document that we refer to as the book of Acts. But not only that, I think it helps us see, particularly with the extra biblical corroborations, that the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't necessarily written to us, that there's a historical setting that these documents fit in. And by understanding their historical frameworks and how they fit into a broader narrative of what was going on in the first century, when we can see corroborations from documents outside of the Bible, knowing and understanding those things gives us a broader and better picture to be able to 
interpret and understand what's going on within the scriptures themselves. I mean, everything that is within the scripture is there and is clear in what is meant to be clear in terms of how are we saved? You know, those those facts of salvation and truth. But by understanding all of these other pieces that fit around the setting of the New Testament documents within the first century, not only are we able to show the strength of the historicity of a document like the Book of Acts, but I think we're actually better able to understand it and apply it to our lives today. That actually understanding how it was read and spread and understood within its original context, we can then ask the question, and then how do we understand it today? How does that apply to us today? How do we understand the original message and original context and original intention? And how does that better strengthen our our faith in a number of ways? Um, yeah, Thanks so much, Jonathan, for taking the time spending uh, the the last few minutes with us in order to describe some of these things to us, uh, help us understand the book of Acts and its uh, historical veracity, and using that, that word once again, the verisimilitude of uh, what goes into it. Jonathan, how can our listeners find your, your stuff outside of this podcast? Well, why don't you just give a couple shameless plugs uh, in terms of where people can find you? Sure. So I have a website called uh, com. And there you can find links to my YouTube channels and, uh, and also my, uh, an archive of my, my articles. Uh, and so that's, that's a good place uh, to, to find me. If, you, if you're on YouTube, you can type in Dr. Jonathan Clanchy. That'll take you to my YouTube channel where I upload a lot of my interviews and talks and debates and so forth. I also have another channel called Jets Academy where I interview scholars and thinkers from across the theological spectrum uh, and have them, del- or have them deliver lectures and, and uh, take questions. So that's also a good resource uh, that you might want to check out as well. Yeah. For the listeners, take advantage of the resources that that Jonathan is putting out online because he has some great content, not only for stuff like this, uh, the reliability of the Bible, uh, but he does a lot of interaction with interfaith dialogue with Muslims. He's, as I mentioned at the beginning, he's a scientist. And so he has content coming from the perspective of someone who has the, the expertise in that area to talk about intelligent design and interact with um, different uh, people of different worldview perspectives on that particular topic. So there's just, there's a lot of really great content that I think we need to be promoting more, that we need to get out there um, from guys like Jonathan who can help us to give a reason for the hope that we have and do so in an intellectual, rigorous, uh, but gracious way. So thank you so much, Jonathan, for being on the podcast today. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on, Wesley. You've been listening to another edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for listening.